Sophie's World by Josteen Gardner. The Middle Ages. Going only part of the way is not the same as going the wrong way. A week passed without Sophie hearing from Alberto Knox. There were no more postcards from Lebanon either, although she and Joanna still talked about the cards they found in the major's cabin. Joanna had had the fright of her life, but as nothing further seemed to happen, the immediate terror faded and was submerged in homework and badminton. Sophie read Alberto's letters over and over, looking for some clue that would throw some light on the Hilda mystery. Doing so also gave her plenty of opportunity to digest the classical philosophy. She no longer had difficulty in distinguishing Socrates and Socrates and Socrates or Plato and Aristotle from each other. On Friday, May twenty-fifth, she was in the kitchen fixing dinner before her mother got home. It was a regular Friday agreement. Today, she was making fish soup with fish balls and carrots, plain and simple. Outside, it was becoming windy. As Sophie stood stirring the casserole, she turned toward the window. The birch trees were waving like cornstalks. Suddenly, something smacked against the window pane. Sophie turned around again and discovered a card sticking to the window. It was a postcard. She could read it through the glass. Hilda Molochnad, Co. Sophie Munson. She thought as much. She opened the window and took the card. It could hardly have blown all the way from Lebanon. This card was also dated June fifteenth. Sophie removed the casserole from the stove and sat down at the kitchen table. The card read, "Dear Hilda, I don't know whether it will still be your birthday when I read this card. I hope so, in a way, or at least that not too many days have gone by. A week or two for Sophie does not have to mean just as long for us." I shall be coming home for Midsummer Eve, so we can sit together for hours in the glider, looking out over the sea. Hilda, we have so much to talk about. Love from Dad, who sometimes gets very depressed about the thousand-year-long strife between Jews, Christians, and Muslims. I have to keep reminding myself that all three religions stem from Abraham. So I suppose they all pray to the same God. Down here, Cain and Abel have not finished killing each other. P.S. Please say hello to Sophie. Poor child, she still doesn't know how this whole thing hangs together. But perhaps you do. Sophie put her head down on the table, exhausted. One thing was for certain: she had no idea how this thing hung together. But Hilda did, presumably. If Hilda's father asked her to say hello to Sophie, it had to mean that Hilda knew more about Sophie than Sophie did about Hilda. It was all so complicated that Sophie went back to fixing dinner. A postcard that smacked against a kitchen window all by itself—you could call that airmail. As soon as she had set the casserole on the stove again, the telephone rang. Suppose it was Dad. She wished desperately that he would come home so she could tell him everything that had happened in these last weeks. But it was probably only Joanna or Mom. Sophie snatched up the phone. Sophie and Munson," she said. "It's me," said a voice. Sophie was sure of three things: it was not her father, but it was a man's voice, and a voice she knew she had heard again. "Who is this?" "It's Alberto." "Oh!" Sophie was at loss for words. It was the voice from the Acropolis video that she had recognized. "Are you all right?" 
Sure. From now on, there will be no more letters. But I didn't send you a frog. We must meet in person. It is getting to be urgent, you see. Why? Hilda's father is closing in on us. Closing in how? On all sides, Sophie. We must work together now. How? But you can't help much before I told you about the Middle Ages. We ought to cover the Renaissance and the 17th century as well. Berkeley is a key figure. Wasn't he the man in the picture at the Major's cabin? That very same. Maybe the actual struggle will be waged over his philosophy. You make it sound like a war. I would rather call it a battle of wills. We have to attract Hilda's attention and get her over on our side before Father comes home to Lilisand. I don't get it at all. Perhaps the philosophers can open your eyes. Meet me at St. Mary's Church at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. But come alone, my child. So early in the morning? The telephone clicked. Hello? He had hung up. Sophie rushed back to the stove just before the fish soup boiled over. St. Mary's Church? That was an old stone church from the Middle Ages. It was only used for concerts and very special ceremonies. And in the summer, it was sometimes open to tourists. But surely it wasn't open in the middle of the night. When her mother got home, Sophie had put the card from Lebanon with everything else from So Abalto and Hilde. After dinner, she went over to Joanna's place. We have to make a very special arrangement, she said as soon as her friend opened the doors. She said no more until Joanna had closed her bedroom door. It's rather problematic, Sophie went on. Spit it out. I'm going to have to tell Mom that I'm staying the night here. Great. But it's only something I'm saying, you see. I've got to go somewhere else. That's bad. Is it a guy? No, it's had to do with Hilda. Joanna whistled softly, and Sophie looked her severely in the eye. I'm coming over this evening, she said, but at seven o'clock, I've got to stink out again. You've got to cover for me until I get back. But where are you going? What is it that you have to do? Sorry, my lips are sealed. Sleepovers were never a problem. On the contrary, almost. Sometimes Sophie got the impression that her mother enjoyed having the house to herself. You'll be home for breakfast, I suppose, was her mother's only remark as Sophie left the house. If I'm not, you know where I am. What on earth made her say that? It was one weak spot. Sophie's visit began like any other sleepover, with talk until late until the night. The only difference was that when they finally settled down to sleep at about two o'clock, Sophie set the alarm clock to quarter to seven. Five hours later, Joanna woke briefly as Sophie switched off the buzzer. Take care, she mumbled. Then Sophie was on her way to St. Mary's Church, lay on the outside of town. It was several miles walk away, but even though she had only slept for a few hours, she felt wide awake. It was almost eight o'clock when she stood at the entrance to the old stone church. Sophie tried the massive door. It was unlocked. Inside the church, it was as deserted and silent as the church was old. A bluish light filtered in through the stained glass windows, revealing a myriad of tiny particle dusts hovering in the air. The dust seemed to gather in thick beams this way, and that inside the church. 
Sophie sat on one of the benches in the center of the nave, staring toward the altar with the old crucifix painted in muta colors. Some minutes passed. Suddenly, an organ began to play. Sophie dared not look around. It sounded like an ancient hymn, probably from the Middle Ages. There was silence again. Then she heard footsteps approaching from behind her. Should she look around? She chose to fix her eyes on the cross. Footsteps passed her on their way up the aisle, and she saw a figure dressed in brown monk's habit. Sophie could have sworn it was a monk right out of the Middle Ages. She was nervous, but not scared out of her wits. In front of the altar, the monk turned in a half circle, then climbed up the pulpit. He leaned over the edge, looked down at Sophie, and addressed her in Latin. Gloria Patri et Filio et Spiritus Sancto. Sigre etta in principio et nunc et semper et in saracula saraculum. Amen. Talk sense, silly! Burst Sophie burst out. Her voice resounded all around the old stone church. Although she had realized that the monk had to be Alberto Knox, she regretted her outburst in this vulnerable place of worship. But she had been nervous, and when you're nervous, it's comforting to break all taboos. Shh! Alberto held up one hand, as priests do when they want the congregation to be seated. The Middle Ages began at four, he said. The Middle Ages began at four? asked Sophie, feeling stupid but no longer nervous. About four o'clock, yes, and then it was five and six and seven. But it was as if time stood still, and it got to be eight and nine and ten. But it was still the Middle Ages, you see. Time to get up to a new day, you may think. Yes, I see what you mean. But it is still Sunday, one long, endless row of Sundays. And it got to be eleven and twelve and thirteen. This was the period we call the High Gothic, when the great cathedrals of Europe were built. And then, sometime around fourteen hours, at two in the afternoon, a cock crowed, and the interminable Middle Ages began to ebb away. So the Middle Ages lasted ten hours then, said Sophie. Alberto thrust his head forward out of the monk's crawl and surveyed his congregation, which consisted of a fourteen-year-old girl. If each hour was a hundred years, yes. We could pretend that Jesus was born at midnight. Paul began his missionary journeys just before one half-past one in the morning and died in Rome a quarter of an hour later. Around three in the morning, the Christian churches were more or less banned, but by A.D. 313, it was an accepted religion in the Roman Empire. That was in the reign of Emperor Constantine. The Holy Emperor himself was first baptized on his deathbed many years later. From the year 380, Christianity was the official religion throughout the entire Roman Empire. Didn't the Roman Empire fall? It was just beginning to crumble. We are standing before one of the greatest changes in the history of culture. Rome was the 4th century, being threatened by both barbarians pressing in from the north and disintegration from within. In A.D. 330, Constantine the Great moved the capital of the empire from Rome to Constantinople, the city he had founded at the approach of the Black Sea. Many people considered the new city the Second Rome. In 395, 
the Roman Empire was divided in two: the Western Empire with Rome as its center, and the Eastern Empire with the new city of Constantinople as its capital. Rome was blundered by barbarians in 410, and in 476, the whole of the Western Empire was destroyed. The Eastern Empire continued to exist as a state right up until 1453, when the Turks conquered Constantinople, and its name got changed to Istanbul. That's right, Istanbul is its latest name. Another date showed we should notice is 526. That was the year when the church closed Plato's Academy in Athens. In the same year, the Benedictine Order, the first of the great monastic orders, was founded. The year 529 thus became a symbol of the way the Christian Church put a lid on Greek philosophy. From then on, monasteries had the monopoly of education, reflection, and meditation. The clock was ticking. Around half past five, Sophie saw what Alberto meant by all these times. Midnight was zero. One was one o'clock. One o'clock was one hundred actually after Christ. Six o'clock was six hundred after Christ, and fourteen hours was one hundred one thousand four hundred years after Christ. Alberto continued. The Middle Ages were actually mean. Means the period between two other epochs. The expression arose during the Renaissance. The Dark Ages, as they were also called, were seen then as one interminable thousand-year-long night, which had settled over Europe between antiquity and the Renaissance. The word medieval is used negatively nowadays about anything that is over-authoritative and inflexible. But many historians now consider the Middle Ages to have been a thousand-year period of germination and growth. The school system, for example, was developed in the Middle Ages. The first convent schools were opened quite early on in the period, and cathedral schools followed in the 12th century. Around the year 1200, the first universities were founded, and the subjects to be studied were grouped into various faculties, just as they are today. A thousand years is a really long time. Yes, but Christianity took time to reach the masses. Moreover, in the course of the Middle Ages, the various nation states established themselves with cities and citizens, folk music, and folk tales. What would fairy tales and folk songs have been without the Middle Ages? What of Europe have been even a Roman province, perhaps? Yet the resonance in such names as England, France, or Germany is the very same boundless deep we call the Middle Ages. There are many shiny fish swimming around in these depths, although we do not always catch sight of them. Dorian lived in the Middle Ages, so did Saint Olaf and Charles Magna, to say nothing of Romeo and Juliet, Joan of Arc, Ivanhoe, and the Pied Piper of Hamelin, and many mighty princes and majestic kings, chivalrous knights and fair damsels, anonymous stained glass window makers and ingenious organ builders. And I haven't even mentioned the friars, crusaders, and witches. You haven't mentioned the clergy either. Correct. Christianity didn't come to Norway, by the way, but until the eleventh century, it would be an exaggeration to say that the Nordic countries converted Christianity in one fell swoop. Ancient heathen, ancient 
ancient heathen beliefs persisted under the surface of Christianity, and many of them and many of these pre-Christian elements became integrated with Christianity. In Scandinavian Christmas celebrations, for example, Christian and Old Norse customs were wedded even to this day. And here the old saying applies: that married folk grow to resemble each other. Yuletide cookies, Yuletide piglets, and Yuletide ale began to resemble three wise men from the Orient and the manager in Bethlehem. But without a doubt, Christianity gradually became the predominant philosophy of life. Therefore, we speak of the Middle Ages as becoming an ununifying force of Christian culture. So it wasn't all gloom then. The first centuries after the year four hundred really were a cultural decline. The Roman period had been a high culture with big cities that had sewers, public baths, and libraries. Not to mention proud architecture. In the early centuries of the Middle Ages, this entire culture crumbled. So did its trade and economy. In the Middle Ages, people returned to payment in kind and bartering. The economy was now characterized by feudalism, which meant that few powerful nobles owned the land, which had the serfs to toil in in order to live. The population also declined steeply in the first centuries. Rome had over a million inhabitants in antiquity, but by 600, the population of the old Roman capital had fallen to 40,000, a mere fraction of what it had been. Thus, a relatively small population was left to wander among what remained of the majestic edifices of the city's former glory. When they needed building materials, there were plenty of ruins to supply them. This was naturally a source of great sorrow to the present-day archaeologists, who would have rather seen medieval men leave the ancient monuments untouched. <laughs>